0: Hello, everybody. Welcome back to Firewall's Don't Stop Dragons. I'm your host, Gary Parker. Today we have episode 333, a nice fun number to say, for July 17th, 2023. Got a new show for you today and lots of things to cover. But real quick before we do that, just a note, I will be doing a new Dragon Challenge Coin promotion. Got these cool new version 2.0 coins that I need to start giving away. Stay tuned after the news uh, when I'll give you a few more details about that. But if you're going to be in Vegas for Hacker Summer Camp... I may be able to hand you your coin in person, and you could cash it in immediately for your free drink. So anyway, uh, more on that in a minute. So like I said, it's a news week. We've got plenty of things to cover. Uh, I'm going to talk really quickly about an update for Apple for all of its devices, basically, but more about how it went down because it was kind of weird. Got an article from Wired about EV chargers. I just got myself a new EV, so I found this particularly interesting, but we should all be concerned about this. Got another story actually related to one I think we covered last fall, but a new update from the Associated Press about some big name tax preparation firms that were funneling a lot of really private information to Facebook. And then related to that, I said last week that I was going to talk about Threads, which is Metas or Facebook's uh, Twitter clone, basically. Twitter's been having a lot of problems lately, if you have not been following it on the news. Uh, And so... There's blood in the water, and a lot of these companies are trying to come up with Twitter alternatives. And, of course, Facebook, not one to miss out on this, has made a really big splash with their Twitter clone called Threads. But the reason it was so popular so fast is kind of interesting to dissect. And, of course, we should take a quick look at the privacy for Threads, which, of course, as you might expect, is not that great. Interesting story from France about a new bill allowing police to remotely activate cameras on citizens' iPhones? Or... Android phones, presumably. And then I've got a few stories that there's, there were a lot of these that at the same time that were all related to police monitoring us. One from the Tampa Bay Times about how uh, local police are monitoring private security cameras. One from the New York Daily News about how the NYPD is being basically forced as part of policy to try to get the IDs of every phone of people who come through their system. A story from Sacramento, California, about how cops are sharing license plate reader data with other states that have anti-abortion laws in which the people whose license plates may be captured may be, you know, fined heavily or even put in jail. And probably as a response to stories like this, Massachusetts is weighing an outright ban on selling unusual location data. Then a story from the Washington Post about how your printing service or even your home printer may be doing things with the documents that you're printing. And then because we've got so much news, I'm not going to be doing a Dear Carrie question this week, but I do have my tip of the week. And it's the first part of a multi-part series uh, that I am doing now about how to protect your home network. And we've talked about this in the past, but I'm taking a slightly different angle on it. And I'm kind of testing out a new, I don't know, personal security and privacy framework that I'm working on. So, anyway, I'll tell you all about that. Lots to get to. Let's let's jump in. All right. First up, this is from Mac Rumors, and it's just a real quick story about an Apple uh, security update. But it went kind of weird this time, so I want to talk about that. Rapid security response updates are designed to provide iOS and macOS users with security fixes without the need to install a full software update. Today's updates, and this was last week. Address an actively exploited WebKit vulnerability, so it's a good idea to update as soon as possible. iOS Security Response 16.5.1c and macOS Ventura Security Response 13.4.1c are available through the standard software update mechanism in the Settings app. These are quick updates requiring just a couple minutes to download the update and then a restart for the install process. Once the Rapid Security Response update is installed iOS 16.5.1 users and macOS Ventura 13.4.1 users will see an updated version of the software and tapping on the version in the about section of the settings will display information about the installed OS version and the rapid security response update. Apple initially introduced these rapid security response updates earlier in the week, but the way they were named caused issues with Safari. Select websites like Facebook, Instagram, WhatsApp, Zoom, and more began giving a warning about not being supported on the Safari browser following this software installation. As a result, Apple pulled the RSRs, or Rapid Security Responses, pending a fix and provided information to users on how to remove the updates. The new RSRs will not cause the same Safari issue. All right, so that, like I said, that was a short article, but this was there's more to it than this. So I guess what had happened is... Some part of the change in the original version of the security update, the A version that came out first, changed the web kit in such a way that it reported its user agent, which is basically your browser. Um, When you talk to a website, your web browser gives it a bunch of information under the covers about the browser and your device and things like that to help the site that you're talking to give the proper response. You know, if you're on a mobile phone versus a desktop, uh, you know, it might give you a different layout for the web page, for example. And part of what it helpfully gives is kind of like the browser name and version. And on Mac OS, uh, all web browsers currently must be based on Apple's WebKit, which so it's kind of like the engine, kind of like Chromium is for Chrome. Uh, WebKit is sort of the engine that web browsers on iOS devices must be built on. And I guess it put the the version number in the user agent field with this little letter letter C in parentheses. And I guess that really threw off a bunch of websites and they just kind of choked on it And, and people were complaining, like I can't get to Facebook anymore or I can't get the regular Facebook experience anymore because it's complaining about my browser version. And so Apple had to back that up and then redo the fix with a different way of listing its user agent version, which I, I just looked at it myself and it looks like they just removed the C or the, the lowercase letter that went with the version. So I guess that was throwing things off. Now, some things I've read said that there were, you know, maybe other little tweaks that Apple had put into this rapid security response that weren't related to the fix, which makes no sense. I'm so not sure if that actually happened, but it, so apparently that Apple has not done a lot of these security fixes and maybe they hadn't done one yet that uh, affected WebKit or this user agent field. But apparently, that was causing problems. And going forward, I'm sure that probably won't happen again. But these things are important. I know that some people were frustrated with who applied this right away. You know, I had posted something on my social media, hey, there's an update, go grab it when the A version was out. And actually, somebody responded to one of my posts saying, you know, hey, I can't get into Facebook now, what gives? And this was why. So I know this could be frustrating when things like this happen. But Keep up with it. Don't let this dissuade you from applying these security fixes, these rapid security responses when they come out because they are important. All right, let's move on. This next story is from Wired and it's about EV chargers. With his electric Kia EV6 running low on power, Sky Malcolm pulled into a bank of fast chargers near Terre Haute, Indiana to plug in. As his car powered up, he peeked at nearby chargers. One in particular stood out. Instead of the businesslike welcome screen displayed on the other Electrify America units, this one featured a picture of President Biden pointing his finger with an I did that caption. It was the same meme the president's office critics started slapping on gas pumps as prices soared last year, cloned 20 times across the screen. And this is a quote from Malcolm, quote, it was unfortunately not terribly surprising, unquote. Such shenanigans are increasingly common. At the beginning of the war in Ukraine, hackers tweaked charging stations along the Moscow-St. Petersburg motorway in Russia to greet users with an anti-Putin message. Around the same time, cyber vandals in England programmed public chargers to broadcast pornography. Just this year, the hosts of the YouTube channel The Kilowatts tweeted a video showing it was possible to take control of an Electrify America station's operating system. While such breaches have so far remained relatively innocuous, cybersecurity experts say the consequences would be far more severe at the hands of truly nefarious miscreants. As companies, governments, and consumers sprint to install more chargers, the risk could only grow. In recent years, security researchers and white-hat hackers have identified sprawling vulnerabilities in Internet-connected home and public charging hardware that could expose customer data, compromise Wi-Fi networks, and, in a worst-case scenario, bring down power grids. Given the dangers, everyone from the device manufacturers to the Biden administration is rushing to fortify these increasingly common machines and establish security standards. This is a quote from Jay Johnson, a cybersecurity researcher at Sandia National Labs. Quote, this is a major problem. It's a potentially very catastrophic situation for this country if we don't get this right, unquote. Vulnerabilities in EV charger security aren't hard to find. Johnson and his colleagues summarized known shortcomings in a paper published last fall in the Journal of Energies. They found everything from the possibility of hackers being able to track users to vulnerabilities that, quote, may expose home and corporate Wi-Fi networks to a breach, unquote. Another study led by Concordia University and published last year in the Journal of Computer and Security highlighted more than a dozen classes of severe vulnerabilities, including the ability to turn chargers on and off remotely as well as deploy malware. When British security research firm Pentest Partners spent 18 months analyzing seven popular EV charger models, it found five had critical flaws. For instance, it identified a software bug in a popular charge point network that hackers could likely exploit to obtain sensitive user information. A charger sold in the UK by Project EV allowed researchers to overwrite its firmware. Such cracks could conceivably permit hackers to access vehicle data or consumers' credit card information, says Kevin Monroe, a co-founder of Pentest Partners. But perhaps the most worrying weakness to him was that, as with Concordia testing, this team discovered that many of the devices allowed hackers to stop or start charging at will. This could leave frustrated drivers without a full battery when they need one, but it's the cumulative impacts that could be truly devastating. And this is a quote from uh, Monroe, quote, it's not about your charger, it's about everyone's charger at the same time, unquote. Many home users leave their cars connected to the chargers, even if they aren't drawing power. They might, for example, plug in after work and schedule the vehicle to charge overnight when prices are lower. If a hacker were to switch thousands or millions of chargers on or off simultaneously, it could destabilize and even bring down entire electricity networks. Another quote from Monroe, quote, We've inadvertently created a weapon that nation states could use against our power grid, unquote. The United States glimpsed what such an attack might look like in 2021 when hackers hijacked Colonial Pipeline and disrupted gasoline supplies nationwide. The attack ended once the company paid millions of dollars in ransom. Monroe's top recommendation for consumers is to not connect their home chargers to the Internet, which should prevent the exploitation of most vulnerabilities. The bulk of safeguards, however, must come from manufacturers. And this is a quote from Jacob uh, Hoffman-Andrews, who's a senior staff technologist at the EFF, who says, quote, It's the responsibility of the companies offering these services to make sure they are secure. To some degree, you have to trust the device you're plugging into, unquote. Right. So I've got an EV. I just got one. (laughs) And... I have a home charger and that home charger wants to be connected to the internet. You have an app you install for your charger so that you can control and monitor your charger, tell it when to stop and start charging when it can notify you that your car has been charged. Of course, my car it has an app too, uh, and it's monitoring its own charging. So it also can let me know when it's charging and when the charging is complete. So I suppose maybe I, maybe I don't need to connect my charger to the internet, but most of them just assume you're going to do that. And I, I would not think it's a, a stretch of the imagination to think that some of them just won't work properly if they're not connected to the internet even if they don't need to be connected to the internet they're probably coded the software on them is running assuming that they will be connected to the internet so the answer again is 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 not that we the end users have to shoulder the responsibility in all these cases and try to dumb down our devices and protect them ourselves uh, even though I did put mine on the guest network i certainly didn't put it on my regular home network in case it does get hacked We really need the people that make these things to make them secure in the first place. And we're also worried about the charging stations, the public charging stations, not just the ones that we have in our homes, uh, but the ones that you now see basically gas stations for EVs. That's how this article started, was talking about one of those being hacked. The downside there is there's probably banks and banks of these things all under a single control, so if someone were to hack into one of these companies, they like Tesla or Electrify America or whatever, they actually might be able to, on a bulk scale, cause havoc for the grid. All right, moving on. Here's an article from the Associated Press about three big tax preparation companies sharing a lot of your information with Meta. Three large tax preparation firms sent extraordinarily sensitive information on tens of millions of taxpayers to Facebook parent company Meta over the course of at least two years, a group of congressional Democrats reported on Wednesday. They say some of that data was then used by Meta to create targeted advertising to its own users, other companies, and to train Meta's algorithms. The Democrats' report urges federal agencies to investigate and potentially go to court over the wealth of information that H&R Block, Tax Act, and Tax Slayer shared with the social media giant. In a letter to the heads of the IRS, the Department of Justice, the Federal Trade Commission, and the IRS watchdog... Seven lawmakers said their findings, quote, reveal a shocking breach of taxpayer privacy by tax prep companies and by big tech firms, unquote. Their report said that highly personal and financial information about sources of taxpayers' income, tax deductions, and exemptions was made accessible to Meta as taxpayers used the tax software to prepare their taxes. That data came to Meta through its pixel code which the tax firms installed on their websites to gather information on how to improve their own marketing campaigns. In exchange, Meta was able to access the data to write targeted algorithms for its own users. The program collected information on taxpayers' filing status, income, refund amounts, names of dependents, approximate federal tax owed, which buttons were clicked on the tax preparer's websites, and the names of tax entry forms that the taxpayer navigated, the report states. Taxpayer data was also shared with Google through its own tracking tools, though the firm told lawmakers that it never used the information to track users on the Internet, according to the report. The letter to federal agencies was signed by Senators Elizabeth Warren, Ron Wyden, Richard Blumenthal, Tammy Duckworth, Bernie Sanders, Sheldon Whitehouse, and Representative Katie Porter. The lawmakers called for the agencies to, quote, immediately open an investigation into this incident, unquote. They asked the agencies to investigate and prosecute any company or individual who violated the law, saying it could result in billions of dollars in criminal liability to the firms. The Democrats say the report serves as an argument for the creation of an electronic free file system for submitting tax returns that would be run by the government, which the IRS is currently piloting. So that last little bit i threw in it was a longer article but i wanted to touch that specifically because a lot of these tax companies have been backing off of the government's free file program for years and that and we i did a whole set of stories on that years ago when this was the thing but they're getting out of that now they're like they they don't want to be part of it because the government is is regulating it too heavily for them and they're not making enough money off of it so they don't want to do it anymore uh, and part of that bargain was, well, if you guys do this, then the government won't have to. And since they're not doing it anymore, the government is now saying, OK, well, if you're not going to do it, then we're going to give our citizens a simple way to file their taxes online so that most people with simple taxes can do it without having to go through one of these companies. But <laughs> let's be clear, there have been plenty of government websites that still managed to use Google Analytics and Facebook's Pixel you know, all this information gathering stuff because a lot of the frameworks and things that websites use have these things built in by default. So anyway, I just wanted to make a point here that while this is not good and we definitely need to be cracking down on this stuff, uh, that it's it's not above the government to either mistakenly or even possibly uh, on purpose, collect this data and, and sell it as well. Your local DMV and some of these other state agencies collect your and sell your information, for example. So it's not beyond the government to do this stuff as well. We just we just need some privacy laws in this country that will protect our information from anybody who wants to abuse it. All right, moving on. This is from Ars Technica. And since we're talking about Facebook, I wanted to talk about threads. And I've got a couple of articles here talking about this new Twitter clone. Meta's long-awaited Twitter alternative is here, and it's called Threads. The new social media app launches at a time when alternatives like Blue Sky, Mastodon, and Spill are vying for users who are dissatisfied with Elon Musk's handling of Twitter's user experience with its newly introduced rate limits and an uptick in hate speech. Meta owns Facebook, Instagram, and WhatsApp, so the company's attempt to recreate an online experience similar to Twitter is likely to attract plenty of normies, lurkers, and nomadic shitposters. Sorry, that that's a Term of art, shit posters is the thing. Meta is working to incorporate threads as part of the online Fediverse, a group of shared servers where users can interact across multiple platforms. Uh, I'll believe that when I see it. If you're hesitant to share your personal data with a company on the receiving end of a billion dollar fine, that's understandable. For those who are curious, however, here's what we know about the services privacy policy, what data you'll hand over when you sign up, and how it compares to the data collected by other options. Threads potentially collects a wide assortment of personal data that remains connected to you based on the information available in Apple's App Store, from your purchase history and physical address to your browsing history and health information. Quote-unquote sensitive information is also listed as a type of data collected by the Threads app. Some information this could include is your race, sexual orientation, pregnancy status, and religion, as well as your biometric data. Threads falls under the larger privacy policy covering Meta's other social media platforms. Want to see the whole thing? You can read it here for yourself. And of course, that is a link that if you go to the show notes, you can find a click on. There's one caveat, however. The app has a supplemental privacy policy that's also worth reading. A noteworthy detail from this document is that while you're able to deactivate your Threads account whenever you must delete your Instagram if you fully want to delete your Threads account. And I'll come back to that in my next article. Below is all the data collected by Threads that's mentioned in the App Store. Do you have a Facebook or Instagram app on your phone? Keep in mind that this data collection by Meta is comparable to the data those apps already collect about you. But anyway, this is a a list of some of the information that is collected about you health and fitness purchase or purchase history financial information uh location pre- precise or maybe course contact info including physical address email address name phone number and another user contact info your contacts user content photos and videos gameplay content things like that search history browsing history identifiers like your user id or the device id usage data You know, product interactions, advertising data, things like that, diagnostics, quote unquote, sensitive info, which we just talked about, and quote unquote, other data. So if you if you look at the Apple has this on and that's what they're talking about, Apple has this new quote unquote, nutrition label format for privacy, where they listed a standardized format, all the things that could be collected about you or all the things that are collected about you, according to the apps developer, and this is a self reported thing, though, Apple supposedly is trying to police some of this. And if you look at any of Meta's products, um, it's just massive. And this one is too. They collect basically everything. Everything they can collect, everything you will allow them to collect, they will collect. Now, this article goes on and it actually compares threads to Twitter and Blue Sky and Mastodon. Twitter is honestly almost as bad. They collect a lot of stuff too. Now, Blue Sky, which is... I believe that was started by Jack Dorsey, who was the guy who originally started Twitter, and then he was he took off when Elon Musk took over, and he started his own thing called Blue Sky. I'm actually in Blue Sky right now. It's only invite only. There's not a lot going on there because it's invite only, so it's it's a pretty small crowd. But in terms of the kind of information that the app collects on your phone, it's it's pretty minimal, certainly compared to Twitter and uh, and Threads. So another thing, and we're gonna talk about this in a minute when I talk about this next article, is that in a lot of ways, these apps allow them to collect a lot more data. They would prefer uh, you to use a smartphone app instead of, for example, going to the Twitter website, because then your operating system and your web browser and plugins like uBlock Origin can significantly restrict the amount of information that can be collected. It's a much better way to access these services in terms of privacy, certainly, which is why a lot of them don't want you, don't want you to do that. Uh, right now, there is no way to access threads through a web interface. You have to install the app. And frankly, I'm kind of surprised that more of them haven't gone that way, um, where you, there is no web interface uh, available at all, or it's significantly limited. Uh, but the other one, Mastodon, collects almost zero information. And honestly, I really, I like Mastodon. I think it's great. It's It's what... You know, Twitter honestly should have been, but for whatever reason, it just really has not caught on, but threads has caught on like wildfire, but there's some reasons behind that. And that brings us to the next story. And this is from Yanko design of all places. I, I I don't know how this came up in my feed. Uh, It's a good site, but uh, uh, I don't read it that often. I certainly don't go to there for news very often, but I thought this was interesting. And they're talking about the dark patterns that they found uh, in threads. And I'm not going to read you this whole article, but I picked out a few of the ones that they highlighted that I thought were interesting. So anyway, here's here's an expurgated version of this uh, article from Yanko Design on Threads. Aside from probably the launch of ChatGPT, I can't ever recall a recent time in which the internet was this excited. While I personally believed that Zuckerberg's new Threads app was doomed to be a hit and miss, it seemed like I was dead wrong. The Apple saw more than 10 million users sign up in just 1.5 hours, with the number climbing to 75 million as per a recent announcement from Zuckerberg. And by the way, I think at this point they're well over 100 million. The reason? FOMO, along with the fact that the Threads app was designed to be incredibly intuitive. You didn't need to make an account. If you were on Instagram, the account was already made for you. A simple click would import all your followers, your profile settings, and your profile picture and bio. However, veiled underneath that ease and convenience were a few patterns that designers and tech nerds were all too familiar with. These patterns, referred to as dark design patterns, are known to manipulate and influence a user into doing something against their will. I'm not sure I get will. that's a little strong. Oftentimes it's just to uh, get you to do something that benefits the service more than it benefits you. As a user, you've probably encountered a whole bunch of dark design patterns in your life. If you've used the Uber app, you're familiar with how notorious it is to cancel a ride while the app is searching for one. The cancel ride button is grayed out, but the continue searching is black and highly visible. Click the cancel button and Uber asks you at least twice if you're sure you want to cancel. Amazon does the same thing with its Prime subscribers. Try canceling your Prime subscription and chances are you'll just give up because Amazon's made it so incredibly hard to cancel an active Prime membership by burying the option so deep behind countless menus you'll probably never find it on your own. And by the way, the U.S. Congress is working on legislation to address that very topic. Basically, the point of the the bill is to make it as easy to cancel as it is to subscribe. Anyway, back to the article. The Threads app almost immediately displayed a whole bunch of dark patterns with its user interface. We spotted at least 11 of them, and we're sure there are a lot more to come. Here are some highly evident dark tricks the Threads app is using to ensure you stay on the platform as long as you possibly can and supply meta with even more data than before. Now, I just picked out a handful of these, uh, maybe half of those. Uh, let Let me go through some of them in order to make your threads account you need to log in through instagram the threads app doesn't let you create an account without having an instagram account it does so to make the transition for instagram users incredibly easy but in doing so it also ensures that people need to have both instagram and threads accounts active at all times there's no threads without instagram so if you gave up your ig for any particular reason you're in a tough spot While onboarding users was was designed to be easy, the Threads app does something notorious to ensure users don't leave, too. If at any point in time you feel the need to, quote-unquote, delete your Threads app, it means you'll have to delete your Instagram, too. Sounds bizarre, right? Well, the settings panel in the Threads app mentions that, quote, "...deleting your account applies to both Threads and Instagram," unquote, taking the ability to selectively delete your accounts right out of your hands." As a form of consolation, Thread does allow you to deactivate your account. This takes your Thread's profile offline, but the data still exists on Meta's servers, and it still remains tied to your IG or Instagram account at all times to help Meta build that data set on you. Perhaps one of the most malicious dark patterns lies in how much data the app collects on you. And I think that's a bit of a stretch to call that a dark pattern, but let me keep going. Even though Threads is essentially just a microblogging platform, platform, the, the app has access to your health data, financial data, and even your location. In fact, ex-CEO of Twitter, Jack Dorsey, shared a snippet of the amount of data that the app collects on you, and, and it's shocking, and that's actually related to the story I just read. If you're in the EU, you probably don't have access to Threads for this exact reason, because the European Union has some incredibly strict laws on data gathering. In fact, I just saw another article... Uh, today about how meta is blocking people from the eu trying to access uh, threads via vpns because they can't do it from the eu because the privacy laws in the eu are too good even though threads makes it very easy to share stuff to instagram your ig followers can't view your thread unless they install the app and make their account too the most they can see is a snippet which lures them into signing up The above is reinforced by the fact that Threads doesn't have a desktop website either, even though its competitor Twitter does, and even though Instagram does too, Threads can only be accessed by installing an app and logging in. That's how Meta coerces you into installing an app that you then can't remove, and an app that then constantly gathers data on you. So this article has some more points that it makes, but I think that gives the idea. This was a really ballsy move, honestly, by Meta. It was smart because Twitter is definitely flailing right now. A lot of people are uh, unhappy with Twitter. And so they kind of rushed this out to get this threads thing out, this Twitter clone. And they leveraged their massive base of Instagram users to do it. So if you have not done it already, I, you know, if you're already in Facebook land anyway, it's honestly not that much more of a of a privacy threat to do threads, though what i have heard and i think this article may have talked about this too is that if you've gone to the trouble of setting all your privacy settings for instagram and your facebook messenger apps and uh, and facebook apps on your phone and try to dial those down and limit your privacy and then you you know click that hey you're you're on instagram right now or facebook would you like to automatically create your threads account in fact we've already created it for you just click here to activate it kind of thing and then download the app and install the app well when you install that app don't assume that the privacy settings from the ones transferred to the new one. In fact, my guess is uh, you'll have to go through and, and re-lock down all the privacy stuff on threads. At least that's what I'm hearing. I've not done it, obviously. I'm hearing that that they've set a lot of those back to the default, which is much more public and much more data gathering than you would probably want. All right, next up, I've got a, a several articles about data sharing with law enforcement and uh, law enforcement... Surveillance techniques using public cameras and other data. I'm not sure why these are wide ranging. These these are from around the globe, uh, but they all kind of hit in the last couple of weeks. So uh, let's start with this one from Gizmodo about uh, France legislation being passed. Amidst ongoing protests in France, the country has just passed a new bill that will allow police to remotely access suspects' cameras, microphones, and GPS on cell phones and other devices. As reported by Le Monde, the bill has been criticized by the French people as a snoopers' charter that allows police unfettered access to the location of its citizens. Moreover, police can activate cameras and microphones to take video and audio recordings of suspects. The bill will reportedly only apply to suspects in crimes that are punishable by a minimum of five years in jail, and the Justice Minister, Epic Dumont Moretti, claimed that the new provision would only affect a few dozen cases per year. During a debate over the bill yesterday, this was probably last week, French politicians added an amendment that orders judge approval for any surveillance conducted under the scope of the bill and limits the duration of surveillance to six months, according to Le Monde. And this is a quote from a French advocacy group, quote, for organized crime, the police can have access to the sound and image of a device. This concerns any connected device, telephone, speaker, microphone, computer camera, computer system of a car, all without the knowledge of the persons concerned. In the view of the growing place of digital tools in our lives, accepting the very principle that they are transformed into police auxiliaries without our being aware of it poses a serious problem in our societies, The bill comes after a time when the French government previously expanded police authority, authority via technology. In 2021, the New York Times reported that the French parliament passed a bill that would expand the French police force's ability to monitor civilians using drones. French President Emmanuel Macron, argued at the time that the bill was meant to protect police officers from increasingly violent protesters. So that's that's crazy, but my main question and this article did not answer it was how are they going to how are they going to actually do this? I mean, Apple and Google and other makers of these devices are not likely to put in backdoors that would allow this to happen. So I'm not sure how they're planning to do this. But nevertheless, the fact that they think they should be able to do this is extremely concerning i find this just mind-blowing all right next this one's from the tampa bay times police in hillsborough county and clearwater and this is florida are using a surveillance tool that's raising privacy concerns around the country as it gives law enforcement real-time access to security cameras in neighborhoods a deal with the georgia technology company FUSIS. i'm not sure if that's a pronounce it f-u-s-u-s provides the Hillsborough County Sheriff's Office and Clearwater Police Department with a platform that can access footage from up to 2,500 local recording devices. This includes business security cameras and home security devices like ring doorbell cameras, according to interviews and records obtained by the Tampa Bay Times. FUSIS offers a platform that, with permission from private camera owners links all of the cameras together in a network that can be monitored by law enforcement police can also review recordings of video and audio from these cameras without fuses police might need a warrant for that footage the company provides a number of ways to use its products and offers several add-ons including a predictive policing tool searches that rely on artificial intelligence and gunshot detection Yet while FUSIS promotes its product as a tool that that can help keep the community safer by increasing police oversight, civil rights and privacy advocates say the technology creates a vast police spying network. Nationwide, FUSIS is linked to at least 33,000 cameras in more than 60 jurisdictions, according to a report by the Thomson Reuters Foundation, an independent news organization dedicated to human rights and media freedom. Interim Clearwater Police Chief Michael Whalick told The Times that FUSIS has been used since 2021 to locate missing people and solve crimes. FUSIS helps catch the killer from a shooting in March, Wallach said and the agency sees it as a tool that can help protect vulnerable people. The department pays $95,000 per year and can access up to 1,500 public and private business cameras, though it currently only uses 283. While some police departments choose to live stream home security footage, Wallach said Clearwater Police instead monitor crimes and alerts near cameras that are registered with FUSIS and then, if needed, ask owners if they will provide footage. The cameras also allow for artificial intelligence searches that can scan for certain types of vehicles and people wearing a certain color. Wallach said the searches have been useful in solving cases. The Hillsborough Sheriff's Department confirmed the ongoing use of FUSIS to the Tampa Bay Times in June, though FUSIS disclosed the partnership on its website in 2021. A sheriff's office spokesperson declined to answer detailed questions about FUSIS, citing a state law that shields information about police video systems from the public record. The Times requested any contracts between FUSIS and the Hillsborough Sheriff's Office, and was initially told that none existed. When asked how no contracts could exist while the department is actively using the technology, the office then provided documentation. Records show that in July 2020, after using a FUSIS pilot program, the Hillsborough Sheriff's Office asked for help from the Florida Department of Law Enforcement to pay for the $48,476 bill to launch FUSIS. For that price, the agency could gain access to to 1,000 private cameras. The request was part of a larger funding bid for its Eye on Crime network, which already consists of hundreds of publicly owned cameras that the department can monitor at intersections around the county. In the same funding request from 2020, the sheriff also requested $195,501 for license plate recognition trailers, which house cameras that automatically scan license plates. Albert Fox Kahn, who we recently interviewed, is the executive director at the Surveillance Technology Oversight Project, an organization that resists government surveillance overreach and teaches communities how to protect their rights. He said that the right to privacy can be undermined by the use of FUSIS. And this is a quote from Kahn, quote, When we make it easier for officers to turn private cameras into a policing tool, they often can pose a threat to homeowners and business owners themselves. And using this level of community mapping and vehicle tracking is ripe for abuse. If an agency had proposed something like this 20 years ago, they would have been laughed out of the room. But the fact that these sorts of mass surveillance is now big business should worry all of us, unquote. So that's the first story. Here's the next one. This is from the New York Daily News. And it's honestly, it's a weird one. (laughs) Let me just read it, then I'll give you my two cents a little known, but aggressive NYPD campaign to collect the digital fingerprints of cell phones from people in custody has raised concerns among civil liberties experts. Each cell phone has a unique 15 digit identification number known as its international mobile equipment identity or I M E I. When the phone's user unlocks the phone, it's a simple matter to find its IMEI number via the phone's settings app or just by dialing star pound zero six pound on its keypad. And by the way, that's pretty cool. I've I've known that there are some of these special key codes you can enter for a long time, but this, you try it yourself. Just bring out your phone and dial star pound zero six pound. Uh, and it'll bring up uh, all sorts of identifiers, including your IMEI. Phone companies use the numbers to track misplaced, lost, or stolen cell phones, but in the hands of law enforcement, IMEI numbers can become a powerful tool in criminal investigations. IMEI numbers can give police the ability to determine the location of a phone and track communications to it and from it, says Daniel Swartz, a privacy and technology expert with the New York Civil Liberties Union. Swartz said that he hasn't previously come across the practice of collecting IMEI numbers, except by federal intelligence agencies, such as the National Security Agency. Under Mayor Adams' administration, police brass are pressing officers in commands across the city to convince arrestees to give them access to their cell phones so they can record their IMEI numbers, internal NYPD messages obtained by the Daily News Show. Quote, every person in custody must have their IMEIs for all devices in their possession recorded by their arresting officer, unquote, according to instructions sent to cops in one command last month and obtained by the news. Quote, if a prisoner refuses to give the number, state, we do not care what contents are stored in the phone, unquote. In some cases, police sources said prisoners are asked repeatedly to make calls or are being tricked or coerced into unlocking their phones. In the past, people in custody or under arrest were allowed one phone call, but now cops are under orders to encourage detainees to make multiple calls, partly to get them to unlock the phones so the on number can be recorded. Quote, every prisoner is to be asked twice for up to three phone calls by their arresting officer, unquote, a message posted in one command said. Civil Liberties groups said that stockpiling the IMEI numbers violates detainees' protections against unreasonable search and seizure under the Fourth Amendment of the U.S. Constitution. They said it also runs afoul of Riley v. California, a landmark Supreme Court decision in 2014, which held that law enforcement must obtain a search warrant to access data even in the phones of people who have been arrested. And this is a quote from uh, Jerome Greco, a digital forensics supervising attorney for the Legal Aid Society, quote, Clearly, the police are being encouraged to violate people's rights. They need a warrant to do this. If someone consents to make a call, it doesn't mean they are consenting to providing the IMEI number or anything else from the phone, unquote. Greco said that he has heard anecdotal accounts in the past year of officers holding the unlocked phone to the ear of the arrestee during a call and then recording the IMEI number or telling people that their effort to obtain the IMEI number was a quote-unquote routine request needed to complete a standard form. Quote, we've had clients say to us that officers were really insistent and kept bothering them to unlock the phone or make a call in ways they felt was unusual or made them uncomfortable, unquote. That was from Greco. There are exceptions to the Riley decision, Greco said, but they don't apply if police are accessing the phone to gather evidence to be used later. Another quote from Greco, quote, if you are doing it to gather evidence, you need a warrant or an exigent circumstance like when the police have probable cause that information on the phone could prevent harm to someone in immediate danger, unquote. In a statement, an NYPD spokesperson said, quote, the department does not use IMEI numbers for tracking purposes. In limited circumstances, the IMEI number is relevant information which is included in search warrant applications, unquote. Individuals who are arrested are allowed to make phone calls, and the numbers to which these calls are made are recorded on the standard arrest paperwork. In no circumstance are these phone numbers used to avoid obtaining a search warrant, unquote. Despite the NYPD statement, the IMEI numbers are relevant in limited circumstances, the internal records seen by the news show police brass are making extensive efforts to push cops to collect the numbers. When a prisoner refuses to make a call, cops are supposed to notify their precinct commanders the records show. Quote, every prisoner in custody is subject to an inventory search, including obtaining itemizing IMEI numbers, unquote, a commander wrote. Sergeants and lieutenants who do not make sure the numbers are collected can face discipline, the records show. And once again, we have a quote from Albert Foxconn, the head of Stop, who said, exercising your right to making a phone call doesn't mean you waive your other rights in safeguarding your private details in a cell phone. Foxconn said the pressure to obtain the numbers is particularly concerning since it will spur cops to push boundaries in a way that might violate the law, as in the Stop and Frisk campaign of 2006 through 2011, in which the federal judge found racial bias in the way that police were stopping young Black and Hispanic men. And a final quote from Khan: quote, This is a policy where police officers who respect the Constitution are going to get disciplined and officers who coerce people into unlocking their phones are going to be commended. Every time someone unlocks their phone to make a call and more info is recorded as a result, that is an illegal search. This is digital stop and frisk, unquote. So I personally find that just bizarre and it really does not sound at all legal. So I'm sure this is going to be challenged and uh, I'll be very interested to see what comes of that. And you might think, well, this is kind of like fingerprinting, right? Like if someone's put in jail or whatever and they gather the fingerprints, then, you know, is, is that a privacy violation? I think that's actually only ever done at arraignment, which means someone has actually been formally charged. And I can't remember what policies are for keeping those fingerprints on file if somebody is eventually acquitted. But this is kind of like the fingerprint of your phone, and that fingerprint can be tracked and followed, and the history can be obtained, unlike your actual fingerprints, where someone would actually first have to find them and then match them in something in a database. This IMEI number is is used all over the place, at least in the cellular network, And that information through various means and some of that, some that might not require a warrant could be used to, to track your location and things that you've done and calls you've made and things like that. It's, I I can't imagine how this is going to stand up to legal scrutiny. And I just think it's bizarre that this is being done at all. If I hear more about that story, I'll, I'll of course bring, bring it back to your attention. All right. This next one is from the Sacramento Bee, which is a newspaper in California, more than 70 California law enforcement agencies are violating state law by sharing automated license plate reader data with out-of-state agencies, putting out-of-state abortion seekers at risk, according to a trio of civil rights groups. The Electronic Frontier Foundation and the American Civil Liberties Union chapters for both Northern and Southern California sent letters to 71 agencies, including the Folsom Police Department, giving them a June 15th deadline to stop sharing license plate data with states that criminalize abortion. Through several public records records request, the EFF found that listed law enforcement agencies shared license plate data with out-of-state agencies, sensitive information about where people live, work, or seek reproductive health services and other medical care. And this is a quote from uh, the EFF, quote, ALPRs, which you know, automatic license plate readers, ALPRs invade people's privacy and violate the rights of entire communities as they are often deployed in poor and historically overpoliced areas regardless of crime rates. Sharing ALPR data with law enforcement in states that criminalize abortion undermines California's extensive efforts to protect reproductive health privacy, unquote. And the spokesman was referring to AB 1242, a 2022 California law aimed at protecting out-of-state abortion seekers from criminal reprisal from their home states. And this is a quote from an EFF statement, quote, Idaho, for example, has enacted a law that makes helping a pregnant minor get an abortion in another state punishable by two to five years in prison. The agencies that received the demand letters have shared ALPR data with law enforcement agencies across the country, including agencies in states with abortion restrictions, including Alabama, Idaho, Mississippi, Oklahoma, Tennessee, and Texas, unquote. In addition to the Folsom Police Department, law enforcement agencies on the list include ones in Contra Costa, El Dorado, Fresno, Humboldt, Imperial, Kern, Kings, Los Angeles, Madera, Marin, Merced, Orange, Placer, Riverside, San Bernardino, San Diego, San Joaquin, Santa Clara, Solano, Ventura, and Yolo counties. A representative for the Folsom Police Department did not respond to a B request for comment. On Friday, the Twitter account for the Sacramento County Sheriff's Office, which was not listed in the EFF report, challenged the findings. The Sheriff's Office said that the ALPR data is used to, quote, investigate serious crimes such as homicide, child kidnappings, human trafficking, and drug trafficking across state borders, unquote. So, I mean, there's, there's a lot to unpack, honestly, with all of these stories, but I, I, what I want to get back to, honestly, <laughs> the common thread that I want to pull through all this is that the fact that this data is collected at all in the first place is the problem. There are lots of private companies out there with video cameras and license plate readers and facial recognition technologies and all sorts of other tracking technologies Some of them, you know, with centralized cloud storage, pulling this information from all sorts of locations back into one central part that could be searched and you could run AI algorithms over. A lot of these are private companies uh, that are getting this in some cases from private people's cameras and things and and devices from private business owners. They're collecting that data and then they are turning around and making this available to law enforcement or probably anybody willing to pay. But specifically in the case of law enforcement, this is getting around our constitutional rights uh, against unreasonable search and seizure uh, in the United States. And just it's just wrong in terms of, you know, treating privacy as a human right. I mean, so the you know, the real issue is the fact that we're collecting this data in the first place and that we've allowed a lot of these third parties to correlate and collect and and resell this data to to other to other parties. We just we just need privacy laws. We need privacy regulations, and we need them right away. We need them yesterday. So to that end, uh, here's actually a potentially positive story out of Massachusetts, and this is from Engadget. The Massachusetts state legislators is considering a bill that would ban the sale of users' phone location data. If passed, the Location Shield Act would be the first such law in the nation as Congress stalls on comprehensive user privacy solutions at the national scale. The state's proposed legislation would also require a warrant for law enforcement to access user location data from data brokers. Today, the Wall Street Journal published a report with numerous details on the proposed legislation following earlier discussions at the Statehouse. Of course, the bill wouldn't prevent Massachusetts residents from using their phones' location services for things that directly benefit them, like Google Maps navigation, DoorDash deliveries, or hailing an Uber. However, it would bar tech companies and data vendors from selling that data to third parties, a practice without any clear consumer benefit. The Location Shield Act is backed by the ACLU and various progressive and pro-choice groups who see greater urgency to block the dissemination of user location in a post-Dobbs world. And Dobbs is the supreme court decision that struck down the right to an abortion in the u.s as red states increasingly criminalize abortion concerns have grown over the transfer of user data to catch women traveling out of state to undergo the procedure or access medication in addition the bill's backers raise concern about national security and digital stalking implications opposing the legislation is the state privacy and security coalition a trade association representing the tech industry And this is a quote from Andrew Kingman, uh, who's a lawyer with this group, quote, the definition of a sale is extremely broad, unquote. He says the group supports heightened protections that would prefer giving consumers, quote, the ability to opt out of sale, unquote, as the other state laws have done rather than imposing an outright ban. Of course, making it optional rather than a complete ban would likely be much better for data brokers bottom lines. Requiring law enforcement to provide a warrant to access user location data could also help curtail the rising trend of law enforcement buying that information commercially. A 2022 ACLU investigation found that the Department of Homeland Security bought over 336,000 data points to essentially bypass the Fourth Amendment requirement for a search warrant. Although the U.S. Supreme Court has said that a warrant is usually needed for agencies to access location data from carriers, purchasing the data from private companies has served as a loophole. So, yeah, I, I, I would have to agree, I think. I, I don't see any reason to allow selling of location data to third parties. I don't even think there should be any way to opt into that. I don't know why you would do it. I mean, obviously, there are some apps that do need your location to work properly to, you know, weather apps, for example, Uber. There are several apps that need your location on some level. And I really like that a lot of phones now are offering the option for your course, quote unquote, course location. Like, you know, what city am I in currently, as opposed to, you know, I'm at this specific GPS location. Because in a lot of cases, that's that's enough location information. They doesn't have to be specific. So it's nice that you can kind of dumb down the data. I think that that's a good option for your phone to allow. But I also think that that location data should never be used for other purposes certainly not sold on to third parties. I'm not even sure why there's any notion to opt in for that, but I suppose you could give that as an option, but certainly the default should be that you have opted out. And if you do opt in, you should always be able to revoke that. And there should be really, really clear understanding of where that data is going to go once you have opted in. Anyway, this, we need more stuff like this (laughs) and I just wish we could get it at the federal level. All right, last up, this is kind of an unrelated story, but I thought it was interesting. Uh, It's from the Washington Post. And I just wanted to make sure that uh, we are collectively thinking about this and things like this. I'll comment more what I mean by that in a minute. If you're printing something on actual paper, there's a good chance it's important, like a tax form or a job contract. But popular printing products and services won't promise not to read it. In fact, they won't even promise not to share it with outside marketing firms. The spread of digital file-sharing, along with obnoxious business practices by printing manufacturers, has pushed many U.S. households to give up at-home printers and rely on nearby printing services instead. At the same time, major printer manufacturers have adopted mobile apps and cloud-based storage, creating new opportunities to collect personal data from customers. Whether you're walking to the corner store or sending your files to the cloud, it's tough to figure out whether you're printing in private. Ideally, printing services should avoid storing the content of your files, or at least delete daily. Print services should also communicate clearly, upfront, what information they're collecting and why. Some services, like the New York Public Library and Print With Me, do both. Others dodged our questions about what data they collect, how long they store it, and whom they share it with. Some, including Canon, FedEx, and Staples, declined to answer basic questions about their privacy practices. Wondering whether your printer app or printing service stores the contents of your documents? Here's the Washington Post Help Desk's At a Glance Guide to Printer Privacy. All right, so at this point, they actually go through like six or seven... You know, common options. So I I thought this was interesting, so bear with me, I'll read through this. And they go like by manufacturer or service. First up, HP or Hewlett Packard. HP says in its privacy policy, it doesn't store the content of your files when you use its printers or its HP Smart app. While the policy contains a few eyebrow raising moments, HP won't share a list of so called sensitive data it collects, for example, it's nice that this company doesn't appear to be snooping into your print jobs. And a spokesman from HP said, quote, we do not see or store any content printed using our devices or the HP smart app, unquote. All right, next up, Canon. Canon's privacy policy lists files and other content among the personal data it can collect. That includes images, it says, along with their descriptions and metadata, which may include information about your location. Its policy leaves room to use your files for marketing. Canon declined to say whether it stores, uses, or shares the content of documents you print. It also declined to say how long it stores your content and whether it shares any data between its printing business and its security camera system business. Canon, quote, respects the privacy concerns of its customers and complies with federal and state laws applicable to its operations, including applicable privacy laws, unquote, according to a spokesman from Canon. Which, as we've just covered these laws basically don't exist or have no teeth. All right, next up FedEx. FedEx says in its privacy policy that it collects user uploaded information, which includes the contents of documents you upload for printing services. The policy leaves room for FedEx to use that information for advertising or to share it with unnamed third parties. It doesn't disclose how long the data is stored. And here's a quote from a FedEx rep, quote, FedEx office workstations and self-copy equipment are encrypted during use and wiped in accordance with federal guidelines before disposal. At FedEx, customer privacy is a top priority, unquote. She declined to say what precisely is encrypted and whether that includes the content of the documents. All right, UPS. While UPS is a collection of franchises, the parent company UPS Store says its privacy policy: it can store the contents of your printed documents. It doesn't use that information for marketing or advertising without user permission. But if you check a box giving your consent, that information could be up for grabs. And of course, that box may have been on a web page that was automatically checked, and you had to uncheck it. It's really easy for them to get you to check that box. The spokesperson declined to say directly how long UPS stores its customers' personal information, but she noted that the company honors data deletion requests from customers in any U.S. state, even if that state doesn't have a privacy law that grants the right to data deletion, which means you have to reach out to them yourself, figure out how to do that, ask them to delete their data, and hope they do it. Anyway, as for franchises, their privacy policy doesn't directly say whether they store the contents of your documents. The rep declined to say whether the parent company provides rules or guidelines on this matter for franchises. All right, just a couple more. Next one is Staples. The Staples privacy policy says it can store personal data including copy print materials, driver's license number, passport number, and contents of mail. It also leaves room to use copy print materials for advertising. It doesn't disclose how long the data is stored. The company couldn't be reached for further elaboration. All right, it goes on a little bit and it actually talks about the company Print with Me, which sounds like they do a better job and actually talks about your local library too, which they talk about specifically the New York Public Library, but the, you know, basically what they say is it it varies library by library. So if you go to print something at your local library, you know, you might want to make sure that you check their privacy policy. And realize that when you're using copy machines today, those copy machines basically work like computer scanners. They might digitize the image and then print it. Like if you can go back and print several copies of something without leaving the document sitting on the glass, then that means that they made a copy of that document and digitally stored it, and they're printing from the digitally stored copy, obviously not rescanning your piece of paper. And what I hadn't honestly thought about much until I read this is that home printers now could easily be doing the same thing. Many of them now are connected to the internet. Many of them don't even have USB uh, cables to connect directly to computers anymore. They want to be on your home network, and then you're supposed to find the printer over the network and print that way, which means that they could potentially, certainly theoretically, share any data that you print with third parties or store it themselves and use it for their own marketing and advertising campaigns it's not guaranteed to stay inside your home. So I find that rather disturbing personally. And of course, if you go to a public printing service, then it's it's, it's a similar thing, right? I mean, they're, they're gonna be scanning your document and printing it, and you've got to assume that anything you take to a printer, you know, go to your local Kinko's or one of these places that provide public places to do printing, you should at least be aware that they could potentially be saving digitized copies of anything that you print. So the more you know, right? All right, so now it's time for the tip of the week and uh, we're already kind of running along, so I'm gonna keep this short. I've got a, a nice lengthy blog post about this. Again, if you're a newsletter subscriber, you've already got this sitting in your inbox right now. Um, but I wanna do a multi-part series here. I, we've talked about security on the internet before, but after talking to Josh Corman, I kinda got some more thoughts on this. And I, <laughs> I, I got it in my head that I wanted to approach some of these security and privacy topics methodically, like kind of create a framework. And I kind of wanted to base it off of what white hat hackers do, pen testers. These are professional cybersecurity experts that are hired by companies, either directly or through bug bounty programs to say, hey, come hack this, this specifically, let me scope this. But these are things right here that I want to find out if they've got vulnerabilities and we will pay you to find them. And there are frameworks and methodologies for this exact approach. They range from, you know, five to seven phases of things, and they kind of go chronologically. And I wanted to kind of simplify that because, for example, what two of, the, two of the steps involve actually doing the hacking, like going through and, and exploiting something. We're not going to be doing that. What What I wanted to kind of come up with was, you know, a simple way of thinking about, you know, methodically going through and protecting something of yours. And we're going to start with networking and so i broke it down this way scan simplify assess and remediate so basically before you do anything you need to kind of scan you need to do an enumeration uh, of the things you're trying to protect and kind of come up with your scope like figure out what you're looking at and that's what we're going to be talking about today with in terms of your home network we we need to figure out everything that's on your home network and it's not as it might not be as easy as it sounds uh, the next step, and this, again, this was kind of inspired by my conversations with Josh Corman is before you do anything else, before you spend any time and effort trying to protect all these things you just found, first do a simplify step, get rid of anything you don't need, reduce your attack surface first. Like there's no point in spending a lot of time securing something if you're just going to get rid of it, or if you're going to change it out for something else. And it's an important step, you know, to reduce your your workload first. And then do your assessment where you actually kind of go through and figure out how vulnerable things are and what you need to do to fix those things. And then you actually do those things. You remediate. You actually go through and and take steps to, you know, update your software and things like that. So we're going to go through all this eventually. But uh, today I want to focus on the very first part, that scan part. And so we want to find out a list of everything that is on your home network. Now you might think that'll be simple. Like, look, I've got a smartphone and a laptop and that's it. So I'm, I'm done, Right. Probably not, because you've probably also got some Internet of Things devices. You might have some home control stuff. You might have a combination modem router from your ISP. Um, you might not be using it, or you might not think you'd be, you're using it. But you know, did you ever, ever connect any of your devices, perhaps some IoT devices, to that router, and then forgot to move them to the, maybe the router that you bought to uh, so that you could control it for your house? You need to figure that out but you've probably got lots of things in your house that that at least want to be connected to the internet including televisions thermostats watches appliances you know smart lights and smart switches streaming boxes gaming consoles exercise equipment maybe fitness trackers that you're wearing uh, printers like we just talked about there's all sorts of electronics that want to talk to the internet and some of them now are actually smart enough that if you buy one from one manufacturer and get it connected to the internet sometimes these devices can talk to each other and learn about how to get on the internet and do them automatically. It, with the idea being that it's convenience for you, you don't even have to worry about setting up their auto set up. You know? So if I buy three of these smart switches and then I buy and I get them connected to the internet, you might notice that you only have to connect one of them and the rest of them from the app. Once you just say, well, I've got another one. They're like, okay, we got it noted <laughs> and, and it will handle getting them on the internet by themselves. So we, w- we want to find out everything that's in your network, and we want to enumerate these things. And you could just write this on a piece of paper if you want, but if you'd like, I also have started a nice little Excel spreadsheet template that you can download from my website. Um, and it has places for things like the device name, and that's what you want to call it. That's, that's given it some sort of name that you'll know what it is. But then there's a network name. This is like a host name or things like that, that the device kind of gives itself. Sometimes that's configurable. Sometimes it's not. Uh, the make and model of each device, the MAC address, the media access control address of each of these devices. This is a unique, globally unique ID that never changes. Unlike the IP address, which can change all the time. And you can actually, if you know how to look at it, you can actually look at that MAC address and learn some information about the device. If you have both a main network and a guest network, and you should, you probably put some devices on your guest network and some on your main network. So you probably should keep track of which network they're on location. And this is, again, this is where you put it. If I've got three light switches, smart light switches, you know, I'm going to want to know where each one of those things is in my house. And the other thing is, is, as you're going through these things, we're going to find the, the, the support site for these devices. And you're going to want to, you know, keep track of that link so you can just easily find it again down the line. So these are some of the things that I think we should record for each of these devices that we're going to find. So now there's, Two ways that i think you should go about listing all the devices in your home there's the physical way and there's a logical way so physically this is an where you actually walk around your house room to room and you write down everything you see in that room that is a smart device that is connected to the network in some way or form and make sure again make sure you're thinking about your tv uh, smart thermostats Smart switches, appliances, modern appliances today that actually want to connect to the internet. There's a lot of things on the net. Start with that list and give these things all friendly names and and come up with that list. And then we're going to do the logical list. And what this is, is we're actually going to go to the single source of truth, and that is your home router. And this can be a little tricky because every router is different, but there is what's called a gateway IP address. And that's kind of the IP address of your router. And so your router is kind of the, the, the main controller of all IP addresses in your house. It hands out unique IP addresses to every device that wants to get on the network and says, hey, give me an IP address. And it says, okay, here's your IP address. And it, it may change from time to time. If you unplug a device and plug it back in and it reconnects, it may get a different IP address. But they're all within a certain range of IP addresses, what we call a subnet. So actually, if you can find the IP address of anything in your home network, let, let's say it's 192.168.1.55. The gateway address for your router is probably has the same first three numbers and the last number will be one. So in that case, it would be 192.168.1.1, not fifty five. And everything else in your house is probably .20, .20. 210, the numbers usually range from one to 255 on that last part. And the first three of those four decimal numbers in the IP address usually stay the same. Now, if you've got a guest network, those first three will be different from the main network versus the guest network. But the gateway address in both cases is usually the first three numbers of any of your IP addresses and the last digit is one. Now, if you have the manual for your device or if you can find the manual for your device on the web, or by using the technique I just said, if you find the gateway address for your house and enter that into a web browser, that should take you to your router's administration web page. Now, very first thing, if you have not already changed the default password, the default admin password for your router, I would do that right away. Make it something good, save it in your password manager. You know, older routers have a default set of passwords, which are well-known by the bad guys. Uh, and so you need to change those right away. Uh, more modern browsers actually have unique passwords uh, for those accounts. Sometimes they're printed on the box. Sometimes they're a sticker on the manual that comes with it. Sometimes if you're lucky, it's it's a sticker on the device itself that you can look up and find. Uh, but you're going to, once you get to that website, it should ask you to log in, you'll log in using those administrator credentials. And then what you want to do is again, your router is in charge of handing out unique IP addresses to every device in your home. So it knows it has a list. It maintains the list of every device it that, that has connected to your network, either on the guest network or the main network, and that would be two different lists. Uh, of all the IP addresses, it has handed out and what devices are currently connected to your network. And so again, every router is a little different. You're going to kind of have to poke around, but what you're looking for is you're looking for the network tab or tools section and you want to find the DHCP or Dynamic Host Configuration Protocol, DHCP client list. And that is a list of all the DHCP clients, that is the list of the clients of your router. Every device that wanted to connect to the internet had to get an IP address from your router, and this is the list of all the IP addresses that were given out. And when you look at that list, it should contain some human-friendly naming. Not all devices will have these, uh, but most of them will have some sort of a host name or maybe a net BIOS name. These these devices do kind of have Uh, you know, names associated with them that you could either configure yourself or that are automatically configured at the manufacturer uh, that are displayed that will give you some better idea of what they are. Not all of them do. In fact, a lot of IoT devices either have really crappy, ambiguous ones or just gibberish ones. Uh, And so those can be hard to identify. And what you may need to do, uh, you can, for example, it should give you the Mac address of those devices as well on that same List of of devices. If you can get the MAC address, there is a way to look up MAC address, and part of the the first prefix of the MAC address does give vendor information. And if you're lucky, that vendor information will give you a clue as to what that device is. Unfortunately, on some devices, it's really just the vendor of the network interface card or the network interface chip, and that doesn't really help you. But it's something you might want to do. Again, this is all my article. You can check it out there. But when they're all said and done, you want your physical list and your logical list to line up. You want to account for every device that's on either of those two lists. you got to map them together. This is not easy. In fact, this might be the most difficult part of this whole thing, because it's unfortunately not easy to do. Again, if you go to the, my article on this and firewallsdon'tstopdragons.com, there's a lot more links and a lot more help. But what you want to do for this phase, the very first part of this, is you want to enumerate, to list every device that is on your network. But the whole point of this is we want to find out all the devices you have, and then we're gonna simplify those devices as much as possible. Then we are going to assess how vulnerable those devices are and what we need to do to make them uh, better protected and take those steps. So there you have it, there's your news and part one of a series of tips of the week. All right, everybody. We are already long, so I'm going to keep this quick. First of all, I am going to be doing another Dragon Coin promotion. Uh, I have gotten a few Dragon Coin nominations for uh, people who would like to award someone else with uh, with a Dragon Coin for doing good deeds. And if you're interested, in that I'm still giving, I'm going to be doing that for the foreseeable future. So this is tied to the coupons that I had put out and the quests that I had suggested that you go on to help other people to improve their privacy and security. So go to fdsd.me quest for more information about that. But I haven't gotten that many people submitting and I, I've got all these coins and I, I want to give them away. So one of the ways that you can help people improve their privacy and security is to help me to do that indirectly. And so one way you can do that is to become a patron on Patreon. And so, I'm not going to give all the details now because we're already running along, but I will be publishing an article soon on my website with all the details. It'll be similar to ones I've done in the past. Um, But if you sign up at a certain level and if you sign up for one year, that's the only way I can make this financially viable. I will send you a coin. And one of the reasons I'm doing it now in particular is because Hacker Summer Camp is coming up. And for some reason, if you're going to be in Las Vegas, Nevada, between like i don't know august 6th and 14th some, somewhere in that range i will be there and i can present you the coin in person and even maybe buy you a drink if you would like to take me up on that cool perk of the dragon coin to find out more about these coins again go to fdsd.me slash quest you can also go to fdsd.me slash coin two c-o-i-n and the number two if you're going to be at Hacker Summer Camp, you can also sport some really cool dragon swag. You can get your merch at fdsd.me merch. But if you're interested at all in doing this, just be looking on my website. Uh, and I will, once I have the article, I'll, I will put it in the show notes for next week. But I will be doing a promotion for about the next month or so for new patrons. And there's a lot of great benefits for being a patron, including some really great bonus uh, podcast content and a great little community on Discord. All right, everybody. Still looking for some reviews. I, I got a couple trickling in for the book and the podcast. Those are great, uh, but I I need plenty more. So if you like the book. Uh, please leave a great review on Amazon. I'd much appreciate that. If you're loving the podcast, uh, go to iTunes, leave a good review there. Those are the places that most people will see them. Uh, I've got an interview with Ernesto Falcone next week, which I've talked about. I've also got interviews scheduled uh, soon on AI and data brokers and phishing. We've got some great stuff coming up. So if you haven't already, subscribe, and that way you won't miss any of those future episodes. All right, everybody, take care. That'll wrap it up for this week. Stay safe out there. And until next week, as always, Don't get caught with your garbage down.